turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13 as we'll continue our study. And we'll talk a little bit about fathers, but the joy is the father that we have in Christ. And it's neat because it was because of God and it was because of what he did that gave me a a really strong appreciation for dads, for fathers, and for what God has given me. You know, we're talking about cultivating the gospel lifestyle. We've been, I've been showing you some of my new experiences with tractors and finding fruit uh, in our uh, garden. Uh, that actually is uh, the Blecka's garden, Tim and Tiffany. Uh, they planted it, and we're still getting the fruits of their labor. Um, and uh, Tim was uh, texting me and messaging me the other day, and he goes, I'm amazed that you found so many strawberries. And I said, really, you're amazed? And he goes, yeah, because I noticed all the weeds. <laughs> and, uh, and he was laughing because uh, he was teasing me, and he was like, uh, he's like, don't worry. We lived there for 12 years, and we never got all the weeds under control either. So, but... Uh, and I'm not going to show you a picture of all my weeds. <laughs> if you want to see my weeds, stop by the house. You're welcome anytime to stop by, and uh, you can see my weeds. But, uh, and don't worry, I won't make you pull any. But uh, pulling weeds, and that's what we've been talking about, that which diminishes the gospel. And it was amazing. I mean, we went out and started pulling weeds, and it was amazing what we found. And now it's what is continuing to grow. They've, they didn't look so healthy when we first pulled the weeds, but these plants have really begun to go nuts. And uh, we got a, a, every week we seem to be getting more bowls of fruit. And uh, so they just aren't quitting. And it's a good reminder of what God is, is really teaching us here And just like Rob said, sometimes there's the context that unlocks the key to everything. And and for chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians is verse 31. He says, yet I will show you the most excellent way. And that way is love. But it's not the love that's defined by the world. And I am so thankful that our love isn't defined by the world. Because that love is so fickle, isn't it? Yeah, my, my kids love to come to my office, right? My kids, my kids ran in there. The first place they went was to the candy jar. And they put their hand in and grabbed the candy. And then as soon as I was like, oh, you have a gift for me? And they ran out. They got the candy. So love is very fickle. We love the candy sometimes that life has to offer. But as soon as the candy's gone, so are we. And that's the way sometimes love is in the world. But the beautiful thing is, is we can enjoy a love that God has given us, that comes from God, that is defined by God. And I am so thankful for that love because it's going to show us some extremely beautiful things as we discover these last few things of what love is not. And so last week we discovered um, that we have to pull some weeds. Um, and we're going to skip, go ahead and skip that. And right there. Last week we discovered that uh, living with envy is not is a weed that needs to be pulled. 
We can't envy one another. We can't envy what other people have, what God has given. I knew I grew up, and, and I, I didn't have a dad when I, grew, when I was born, and I didn't know my real dad. I've never met him. And then I got an adoptive dad, and, and my mom wasn't saved, and my, my adoptive dad wasn't saved and didn't know the Lord, and, and we grew up in that. And I began to be jealous of other people's dads and envy and and, but that love created problems in our house that love of what I wanted and what I envied that other people had and and boasting and being arrogant is another weed that we got to get rid of if we want to cultivate the gospel and we want to see the church change we have to yank this weed we got to the boastful and arrogant living number three is also living with shameful actions and attitude And now we're going to look at the rest of them. But before we do, let's pray and then read the text, explain the text, and then rejoice in what God has given us. Lord, thank you this morning for your enduring word, your word that has lasted for for all this time, that will continue to last for eternity. Thank you that it is the sure word, Lord, that we can stand upon your word and know that it is true and that it is beneficial. Lord, that your word can just take and and fix every part of our being. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would teach us this morning, that your Spirit, Lord, would guide us to your truth. And Lord, that it would just leap off of your pages, your words, from your lips to our heart, and that we would identify with your love not the world, and not other people, but, Lord, that we would seek to imitate you, your love in which you have loved us through dying on the cross for our sins. Speak to us, I pray, through your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 12, verse 31, it says, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet, or but, I will show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gifts of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There are the, in verses 4 through 5 and into 6, we see these things that love is not. These are the, the weeds that in order for us to see the Lord, His love, His kindness, His long-suffering, the love in which God has loved us, we've got to pull these weeds because that's not what the love that God is, that who He is. That's not the love. This love is worldly love. It's the love that comes from the world. 
And the first one that we see that we're looking at this morning, and we look at it, it says in verse 5, it does not behave rudely, and it does not seek its own. Living preoccupied with self. That's what it means here. We got to pull that weed. Living a life that's preoccupied with self. That kind of love and that weed will diminish the gospel. It'll destroy that love that God gave us. It'll grow so big that you can't see the fruit of what God really gave. The gospel. It's one of the reasons that in church that the world really struggles with coming to church or seeing who God really is is because we struggle as believers to not be so preoccupied with ourselves. That's why when we hear the statement, well, I didn't really get much from church today. You're preoccupied with self. Or I didn't like the music today. It's all selfish desires. Right? If we're honest, the things that we don't like, it's because we have a preference. But that's not, that's not who God is. That's not love. Those preferences can become weeds that can harden our heart to living a life that's based on the gospel. I wrote this down. It said that love isn't interested in its own things. It's interested in the things of someone else. A commentator wrote, he said this, to cure selfishness, if you cure selfishness or living preoccupied with self, you will plant a garden of Eden. Do we want church to be a garden of Eden, of rest and joy? And I said, well, then we got to stop being preoccupied with self. And we can do that. He's right. I would say that in Paul's portrait of love, that selfishness represents our eyes, what we desire, what we see. The windows of the soul are also the windows, some, most of the time, to selfishness. So basically, the idea that God is telling us here in verse uh, 5 is that it does not insist on having its own way. Love never seeks to have its own advantage. To, to live preoccupied with self is you're going to look how doing the things that you're doing might be an advantage to you. It does not insist on its own way. It's not selfish. It is not looking to build up yourself. Right? In Philippians chapter 2, he said what? Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Yeah, right? He, he didn't sit there and says... My, he had the right to sit on the throne of God. He, he deserves all praise. One day every knee will bow before the throne of God, before the Lamb of God. He deserves it. But yet, be, even though he had that right, he didn't stay there. He came down and looked out for the interests of the ungodly. He died for our sins. He chose to save us. It was his choice. It's not our choice. He died for us. Think about that. That's the love that is not displayed here. Love is not self-seeking. It doesn't, doesn't focus on ourself. And that's why Paul wrote to the Galatians and in Galatians 5:13 he says for you are called to freedom brothers only do not turn your freedom into the opportunity for the flesh 
but through love serve one another. Just because we're now no longer slaves to sin and we're free from the consequences of sin and we have this new relationship with God, don't use that freedom just for yourself, for the desires of your flesh. We're not living preoccupied with ourselves, but, but he says, but use that through love to serve one another. In fact, if we're not, it's a person that is living preoccupied with self is so bent on getting his way that he'll twist the facts. He'll look for loopholes. He'll presume what people think. He'll assume why things were done. But in other words, he puts words in people's mouths. He tries to hold others accountable for promises they never made. He leaps or he, he leaps on in his administrative mistakes as opportunities to twist somebody's arm, to seek various other methods, to turn situations to their own benefit. This is manipulation. This is to build up oneself. This is to be preoccupied with self. It's, to, it's scheming in, one, in a person's mind. And this is why, this is what God's saying. This is not what love is. It's not seeking oneself. It's also the other weed that we see here that we need to pull. What he's saying, this is not how we produce a gospel life. This is not what we do. It's a touchy life with an exposed nerve. I don't know about you, but have you ever had an exposed nerve? Right? I don't know. Have you ever... You know, cut yourself so bad that you've exposed a nerve? Have you broken something so bad that it, a piece of your bone is hitting a nerve? Have you ever, you know, you've been in that relationship where they just know how to touch that nerve, right? Uh, I'm, I'm getting to be an expert on that with my wife. So I just keep pushing on it, right? <laughs> She's like, yeah, no, you know what I'm talking about. That's not what love is. He says it's, it's not provoked. Some of your Bibles say not easily provoked, but that word easily is not even, it's not in the original text. But that idea that you're not provoked, that means you're not touchy. You're not super sensitive. You're not quick-tempered. Proverbs 14, 17 says a quick-tempered man acts foolishly, doesn't act lovingly a quick-tempered or a touchy person. We have got to stop living touchy lives. Like, oh, did you see that? We can't be that way. Love will not survive if we do not, if we allow that kind of weed to continue to grow in our relationships and church life. That's why James 1, 19 says, you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone, I like that, but Everyone, it's kind of hard to confuse everyone, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to anger, or slow to speak, and slow to anger. Do you see how love is applied here? Love is not provoked. How do we, by the way, you say, well, man, pastor, that is so hard. And you're like, you don't understand how hard it is. To, to live around that person. It's how hard it is to serve with that person. Do you really? Yeah, I do. 
lived with an adoptive dad that wasn't a believer, who who struggled in life, who was a drunkard and and who was abusive and who was vulgar and mean. I mean, when if I wanted a popsicle, he'd say, "Oh, wh- which color do you like?" And then he'd give me the other color. I'd lived with a guy like that. I know what it is, how hard it is. God knew how hard it was because He lives with us. He can look at your heart and say, yeah, I know how hard it is to love. It was so hard that it it caused my death on the cross for your sin. But you see, you say, well, that's okay. God gives us the secret on how to not be so touchy in life. Right here in James 1.19. Just a little application. Must be quick to what? Hear, slow to and which leads to being slow to anger. Sometimes if we just spend enough time listening instead of talking, then our response will change. So many times uh, we, we, are, we are so quick. The first thing we do is we get angry, then we speak, and we never what? Hear. We never understand. And what did Philippians 2 say? Be quick to, to understand the needs of others. We have to hear so that way we don't speak quickly, so that way we are slow to become angry. You know, the number, one of the biggest reasons for a lot of problems in church and physical problems as far as illnesses in our society today, is the overwhelming preoccupation with our own rights. Our own rights. That I deserve whatever I want, and that means I can do whatever I want to you. And it, and it just it builds up so much hostility and anger. We become so touchy because our rights are trampled on. Uh, let me give you a secret. The secret of love is that we don't deserve anything. But that's why Christ died for us. He showed us the most excellent way. It costs, you know, the thing is, is we become so lonely the more touchy we become. The more that we live this way, this touchy life with an exposed nerve, the more lonely life becomes. I like that in Romans twelve fourteen. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Next time you get mad or upset at home or at church, remember this. You're angry because you don't love the one you're angry at. And no, I love, oh, no, my, my kids tell me all the time, it's like, you know, you don't love me right now. And they're like, no, I love you. I said, you better think about what you're saying. You're saying that I like you, but I just don't love you right now. <laughs> you're angry, right? I, I say that all the time. It's like, but the reality is, is we are not loving those who we're angry at. When you get angry, what you say often wounds the other person because that's because you want to wound them. You want to hurt them. You want to feel better, and so we wound. When you get angry, you decide, I want my way. I want it the way I want it, just like Burger King makes it, right? I want it my way now. I don't just want it my way, I want it now, right? And so we wound others. Angry causes us to say the things that we would never 
that we will never be able to forget the things that leave deep scars. You do the things that hurt and injure, but love bears all injuries. Verse 7. We'll get to that next week. But the thing is, is we can't live, a t- in a, we can't live that way. We've got to deal with our anger. Number six, living the thing here that we see, what, the other weed that we got to pull is to, in order to see the gospel, in order to see people get saved, in order for the church to grow, in order for God to grow in our life, we, we have to stop living with past wrongs in the present. I, it's, like, it's like, wait a minute, why are you still living in the past about something that happened in the past? I don't get it. You basically have, when you are living this way, living with past wrongs in the present, you have changed, changed yourself with change and a, and a lock to the past, and you're never going to get anywhere, both in your relationship with others and your relationship with the Lord. In, in, our, in our text this morning, it says it doesn't, in verse 5, doesn't behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, and it thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoice in the truth. The idea of, of thinks no evil, it's basically the word for keeping no records of wrongs. Uh, it's, it's the idea of stop keeping score. If we're going to pull this weed, we got to stop keeping score. Well, they hurt me this much, so I'm gonna, I have the right to hurt them this much. Or you're going to sit there and think your whole life you're adding up. Do you know why anger becomes explosive? Not because you're responding to a one simple hurt, but because you're keeping score of a lifetimes of hurt. When somebody bumps me that I don't know, oh, excuse me, but when somebody that has continually hurt me bumps me, Get away from me, right? Uh, Why? It's because we've kept records of their wrongs. We can't live that way. We got to yank that weed out. We got to stop keeping score. I'll never forget when I was coaching softball when my my two girls were playing softball because none of my boys would play, still haven't played baseball. (laughs) But I coached softball. Boy, interesting coaching girls' sports. I got to coach girls' basketball too bunch of junior high girls, emotional, and man, they can fight, man. They're scrappy. And uh, if, if they took me serious when I say fight for the rebound. There was nail marks in those girls. <laughs> they were literal, man. But here's the thing. When I was coaching softball, I could, I'll never forget my first year coaching softball, and they, they were in the coaches' meeting and said, now, now make sure you, you cannot keep score because that might offend some of the other players. And we want them to just love softball so much. And I'm sitting there like, that is ridiculous. But you know what's so funny? Because we're like, all right, we can't keep score. And there are no outs. Everybody gets the bat. And I was like, why are we playing then? You know? <laughs> but we get out there and we'd be keeping, you know, it's like, you know, we'd be playing and everybody gets the bat. And, you know, it's like, why do you even throw it to first base? Because there are no outs, you know. And so it's like, but we're doing our thing. And, and at the end of the game, every game we played, somebody comes to me, well, you know, Coach, we won because we scored this many scores. 
I'm like, wait a minute, we didn't keep score. Oh, they did. Oh, coach, we got to, you know, we didn't win today. Oh, coach, we won. You know, and, and my son was one of them. He always told me exactly what the score was after every game. We were told we were not allowed to keep score, but guess what everybody did? Everybody kept score. It's inevitable. But we cannot live that way in church. One of the early church fathers, he said this. He had a beautiful thought about this exact subject of not keeping score. He said, what he said went something like this. As a, as a spark is quenched when it falls into the sea, an injury that falls upon a loving Christian is just as surely drowned. That's the way it ought to be. Offenses ought to be drowned in the sea of love. As injury comes, as problems come, it should fall into the sea, the vast sea of God's love. So that way it never is able to spark a fire of anger, disunity, unloving character towards one another. I love that. To fall into the sea of love. So it just... That is what we need to cultivate. There is, by the way, there's only one person that offers a sea of love, and that is the Lord. The problem is, is we don't see it because this, this huge, fat, you know, you know the weeds, you know, you go and yank and they come out real nice. You know those other weeds that you go grab and you're like, oh, I got to go put on a pair of gloves. And then you go grab it again. You're like, oh, I need to put on another. I, I've pulled those weeds, you know, that have, I put on three pairs of gloves and then I pull it, and I can't yank it up, so I go get a shovel. And, I, and it's like, I, it seems like I spend half the day just on that one weed. This is that weed. We have got to yank it out. We've got to put on whatever gloves that we have. We've got to stop keeping record of people's wrong. Love does not delight in evil. It takes no pleasure in wrongdoing. It is not glad about injustice is not happy when evil triumphs. And it takes no joy in hearing evil openly discussed. That's the last one. Living the life joyfully talking about wrongdoing. That's what this is talking about here when it says that love does, does not rejoice in iniquity. It doesn't take joy in talking about the wrongs of others. What does that sound like? Gossip. Love, love is never glad at hearing bad news. Love never says, well, they finally got what they deserved. I know that's hard. Sometimes when I watch the news and I see the world and I see the problems, I'm like, well, you, you created the mess. And you, it's easy sometimes to say, well, they got what they deserved. We sometimes say that in church life. When we know that people have fallen away from the Lord and we see them, the consequences of the sin in their life. I know, and I, I've said this, uh, as a pastor, it's, sometimes it's really easy as I focus on studying and I focus on, on helping you know, the church and I think about ministry and stuff, it's easy to forget that the world is going to hell. 
And Satan is glad to drag and deceive and make everybody feel good so that they'll go to hell. Eternity apart from God. And it's easy to remember that because we think, oh, I'm not bad, I'm, I'm good. We compare ourselves to the world. And sometimes we forget. And I love to sit in the mall or sit somewhere and just watch. And, and I began to realize, and, and I began to realize those people are dying. And it, I began to stop thinking about all their wrongdoings, and I start thinking about what's missing in their life. When we think about gossip and talking about other people, talking about what we think that they did wrong, and we're missing the whole point, and we're, we're allowing weeds to grow that actually take away from the gospel, take away from Christ's death on the cross, of growing the church and growing and sharing that love with others and seeing people saved. I like the definition of gossip that says this. this is, gossip is a vice enjoyed vicariously through others. Sometimes it's sick to think, but when we're gossiping, we enjoy the fact that they're struggling. That's, and that was a worldly definition of gossip, but that's also a biblical definition of gossip. We, we love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. The truth is, is that Christ died for our sins. There is none good, none righteous, none who seek after God. But God sought us when he came and he died for our sins. That's love. This is the point. Same one. Drive it home. Hitting the nail one more time. The point is this. The gospel will become eclipsed. God's love is essential for the church to grow, but it also, the gospel, his love will become eclipsed by elevating my self-righteousness. We will allow weeds to grow and we'll have all of, we will show a love that is not the love that's from God. By pretending we are better than we really are. Folks, we need to pull those weeds let me give you it this way. Those of you coming Wednesday night, you're familiar with this chart. I don't know if you can read it, but the cross chart. There was a time in our life where we, we came to the realization that we are standing before a holy God that demands perfection. And we know that we are not perfect and we have no way to deal with our sin. And we say, oh Lord, save me. I realize I need, I need to be saved. And we come to that point and we're, we, we're saved from our sins because we are aware of our sinfulness. When we live a life, when we live a life that is not long-suffering and is kind and is based on what God has done for us, then it begins to look like it behaves rudely, it seeks its own, it is not provoke, or love doesn't provoke. We, we provoke others, we're touchy, we're, we're mad all the time. Love that is, is not evil. We think of, of, we think of evil, we rejoice in evil, we rejoice in the iniquity. The, basically what happens, we diminish the gospel. 
we diminish the gospel, we, we begin to pretend that we're really better than we are, and we cut, and we diminish, and we cut out the gospel because we're not growing in our awareness of our sin, but we're really pretending that we're better, and we keep gossiping, and we keep living with anger and resentment in church, and we hold sins against people and the whole time we're just pretending that we're good but the reality is is we just cut the gospel in half the the wall of weeds grew up and and we make the cross of Christ hard to see not impossible god will save who he chooses to save he, the gospel will go forth but we wonder why don't we grow as a church because of a lot of pretending in our life. I like this. As we close, let's read this and listen in Psalm chapter 32. This is a great one to go to. And Psalm 32, as, as we think about... Guys, I, I, want, us to, I want us to grow, but we got to cut these weeds out. But look at we got to be willing to say, yes, I'm a sinner, and, and free ourselves and realize it's okay. We say, yeah, so because I'm aware of how holy God is, I realize that I'm a sinner. And we stop focusing on how sinful everybody else is and stop pretending and, and, and lift up and build up ourselves. That's what David did, and he said this in Psalm 32 as we close. I pray that this would encourage you. This morning, it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all the days long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. When I kept silent, when I kept silent about my sin, David's talking about. When I pretended that my sin didn't exist. Do you see that? God's hand was heavy upon him. My, my vitality was turned into drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin. To you And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with the bit and the bridle, else you will not come near you. They will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be. To the wicked, but those who trust in the Lord, mercy shall surround them. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, 
all you upright in heart. There was a transition in this psalm where David realized that I was hiding, trying to hide his sin before God. But when he exposed his life in, in there, the mercy and the grace and the overflowing and the washing that he felt, that heavy hand that was upon the unrighteous, that was lifted off. Sometimes when we live a life focusing on a selfish life, we so much focus on the sins of others and we're so frustrated. We feel heavy, we feel discouraged, we feel despair. But when we stop focusing on the sins of others and we focus on our sin, we then, and only then, can we experience the loving joy that comes from a merciful God. And guess what? We begin to build, we take out weeds, and we build a Garden of Eden. You want a church that's refreshing and filled with joy and laughter? Pull the weeds so we can see the fruit. The cross of Christ, the love of God. Not the love of the world that is fickle, that depends on how, what you do for them. But a love that depends on the, what God has given us through Christ. That we are forgiven in him. We have to stop pretending that we are worthy and start realizing that God is holy.